found some wood and started a fire and danced even though there wasn't any music. I went to meetings, I wrote the letters, and pretty soon I wasn't alone. We get out of the truck, we hiked through this field with our surfboards. I'm like, there's no way there's going to be waves here. At Patagonia, we are climbers and skiers. We are surfers and anglers. We're activists and dreamers. Stories of the fabric of our shared culture, and we're proud to sponsor the Dirtbag Diaries. Visit us at Patagonia.com. It's June, and every June, without fail, I start to think about the southwest face of Prussic Peak. I flip through Fred Becky's Cascade Alpine Guides, and I try to find another worthy objective. I try to concentrate on the computer screen in front of me, but none of this works. As much as I try to find something to distract me, I always know that the southwest face of Prussic Peak and my unfinished free route are out there waiting for me. It's what keeps me motivated in the depths of winter. Maybe this year, I think. Yeah, yeah, this year. Right. That route, as much as I would like to think otherwise, will define my climbing path. I've done my best bits of climbing up there, and I've also been racked by debilitating fear. I've been stormed off. I've been skunked by permits and evaded rangers to go anyway. In five trips up there, I've given everything I have, and it hasn't been enough. I would like nothing more to complete that route, and yet I also fear going back. I've come to accept that I may or may not realize this dream. Whether it's a route, a distant country, or a remote surf break, everybody has a dream adventure like this. I've said this before, but these goals, these big ideas, they connect us together as a community, whether we're pros or taking our first steps into the wilds. They're what pull us through our lives. Today, Writer and climber Sarah Garlic presents The Dreamers, reflections from four generations of the world's best climbers, Steve House, Henry Barber, Steve Schneider, and Colin Haley. And in the process of finding out what dreams meant to these guys, Sarah learned a little bit about herself. Do you have a lifelong dream? What if you completed it? What if you never realized it? I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. So right here above the dining room table, we have a shot of the west face of Great Trango Tower in Pakistan, uh, with the sun going down on it. It's mostly dark, and the sun is just blasting through the cloud, illuminating just a part of the face. This is my fiancé, Jim. We are upstairs in the house we share in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. We're right on the bank of the east branch of the Saco River, and in the summertime, the house is completely enveloped by the sounds of rushing water. Upstairs, it's a cozy space. The kitchen in one corner, couch in another, our dueling desks where I write and Jim edits his video footage and photos. And surrounding us, hanging on every wall, are framed photographs from decades of adventures. So above the couch, this is a shot of Charlie Fowler on the west face of Cerro Torre. A lot of people ask about this photo. This is actually uh, coming down from the South Col and Everest. Looking over Noopsy, down to base camp. I remember the first time I came to this house. The energy of all those wild places seemed to radiate off the glossy prints. The photographs hung there like a row of dreams, each one just waiting to be plucked off the wall and experienced. They were my dreams, 
They were Jim's dreams. They were the dreams all climbers share. I had been on a year-long climbing binge, living out of the back of a pickup truck, and I had a few more months of transients before I left for graduate school. Jim let me crash at his house while I worked out plans for my next climbing trip. Neither one of us would have guessed that six years later I'd become a permanent resident, and that he and I would be planning a wedding. I remember relentlessly quizzing him about all the trips he'd taken. I wanted to hear the stories behind every one of the pictures. I was 24, he was 35. It seemed like he'd been everywhere. And then I decided to ask him about the mountains he hadn't climbed. Of all the places in the world, was there a single peak or a route that he most wanted to try? Did try, definitely. He didn't miss a beat. We both looked at the wall above his desk and the 11 by 14 print of Fitzroy's west face, taken in 2000 when he was climbing across the glacier on Cerro Torre. You know, as a, a rock climber, Fitzroy is just so appealing. It's, it's so big and the rock is so clean looking and some mixed ice and snow here and there and just, uh, just takes all, all the skills that you've ever learned, you know, from the rock climbing skills in Yosemite to the ice climbing in uh, New Hampshire and other places and combines it in the, the full package. That one answer seemed to tell me more about him than all the other stories of his past adventures. Maybe I already had a sense that we had a future together. Maybe I was drawn to his dream because it was part of who he was right then, in that moment, and also part of who he wanted to become. In recent months, I've started to wonder about those big goals. We all reach a point in our lives where we transition from collecting dreams to narrowing them down. We cross the threshold from each possibility building on the next to realizing that choosing one dream might mean eclipsing another. I am no longer the girl living in her pickup. I am choosing to get married and to invest myself in my community and my work, all of which are also dreams, just not the kind of far-off granite spires. I decided to talk to some experts, the climbers who, at one point or another, chose climbing over everything else, climbers who were at the forefront of their given generation. They've gone from one expedition to the next and in the process have ticked off more summits and new routes than I can even imagine. They're good at getting dreams done. They know about slaying giants. So what are their dream peaks? And what happens when the big goals are attained? What then? I first remember seeing a picture of Cerro Torre when I was around 12 or 13. And I just, you know, immediately thought, that is an awesome mountain. This is Colin Haley. You've probably heard of a 24-year-old alpinist. He's been on a climbing tear over the past few years, putting up ascents in Alaska, Patagonia, the Himalaya, and he doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. I specifically remember when I was 15 saying, okay, I'm going to make it my goal to climb Cerro Torre by the time I'm 17. <laughs> Obviously, that was a little bit unrealistic. Were you able to get down to Patagonia in between being 15 and 17? Oh, no. 
<laughs> but I was able to gain enough sense to realize that I wasn't anywhere close to ready to <laughs> try Saratore. <laughs> that photo of Saratore propelled him into his adult life, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. I mean, what were you doing when you were 15? When I was that age, the biggest thing in my life was winning a soccer game. At the age of 19, Colin made it down to Patagonia with fellow climber Bart Paul. They managed to get up three peaks despite Patagonia's notoriously fickle weather, and they never even saw Saratori until the clouds momentarily parted. It was really impressive. I mean, you see anything in person is way more impressive than in a photo. At that point, I knew, even though we had just climbed three peaks in Patagonia, I knew that I still wasn't ready for Saratori, but it was a at that point, definitely on the forefront of my radar. I definitely knew I wanted to come back to Patagonia and try it before too long. He got his chance in 2007. Colin heckled Colorado climber Kelly Cordes into returning to Patagonia to complete the massive west face of the mountain. The duo linked two existing lines to create a 5,000-foot mega ice route done in a fast and light push over the course of 48 hours. On a clear January day, Colin Haley stood on top of what had been his lifelong dream. It was bewildering because I had had this goal for so long, and it was just such a foreign idea to um, to feel that goal completed as opposed to being a dream. Pretty much always, as soon as I get down from a big climb, I, I immediately start dreaming about the next thing. You know, Saratore, like, finally climbing it for me was the completion of one dream that I'd had forever, but it was also just opening a door to more dreams in the future. You know, if you ask little kids to draw mountains, they draw these steep, pointy spires, which, as most of us mountaineers know, isn't really reality in most cases, but the one mountain in the world where it really is true is and for me, that just makes it the most beautiful mountain in the world. I think I'll, I'll stay obsessed with Saratori my whole life, probably. Saratori <laughs> is high on the list of dream peaks. It's one of those mountains that has inspired generation after generation of climbers. But still, only a precious few of those dreamers have been as fortunate as Colin, even some of the best. Yeah, I've just had a lot of friends get up saying, no problem, I just can't get up the route for the life of me. This is Steve Schneider, one of the original California free climbing powerhouses. At 49 years old, he's held speed records and first free ascents on El Capitan, and he's done more ascents in the Torres del Paine in Chile and Patagonia than anyone else in the world. But this one mountain, Cerro Torre, has eluded him. You know, the typical thing down in Patagonia is like, oh, I just want to get this climb done. It's like, how many people say that? You know, and like, on this peak, that's my one. It's like, wow, I just want to get this one done. <laughs> Schneider first tried Cerro Torre in 1995. And in the past 14 years, he's had expedition after expedition of mishaps. Bad weather, injuries, 
not enough time, more bad weather. And then last year, he was there, actually up on the mountain in good conditions, when his partner, a climber he'd met on the internet, pulled the plug. He just was tired and didn't want to keep going. I was leading every pitch at night. We're taking about 45 minutes of pitch. We're moving along on the thing and probably could have summited the next day. No problem if we'd kept going. The weather was good for two more days after we were pelled off the mountain. And I'm asking around for partners. I think uh, I might end up trying to join the Venezuelans or just going down there and with no expectations, no partner, and just seeing who's there sometimes can work out too. But I'm not going to get any more partners over the internet. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> what keeps a guy like Steve Schneider going down there every year? Is it just the aesthetics of the peak? Is controversial history some secret magnetic pull felt only by climbers? It's the aesthetic of the peak. It's just like this huge granite penis. I love climbing huge granite penises. And it's like the best one on the planet. It's just got that mushroom on top and just it's completely dramatic and just I've really imagined the feeling of being on the summit and tasting it and getting on the final mushroom and vision looking down on Stan Hart and Tori Egger and it's just there in my mind I just need to complete it physically connected I, I think what I've learned from failing on territory is that even if I never get up the peak, you know, even if I try it a couple more times and I'm still unsuccessful, I think I'll be good just because I did try it. I gave it my best, you know, and I don't think it's going to be like this thing that keeps me up at night when I'm old or anything. But if I don't try it, then it might keep me up at night. <laughs> Steve is on to something there, that dreams change once you've engaged them, once you've tried and failed. For Steve, his obsession has been tempered, almost satiated maybe, by his attempts. But for other climbers, failure is where the obsession begins. The failure to us, I think, seemed that it was too big, we were unprepared, inexperienced, didn't have the gear. That wasn't the failure. The failure was is that we hadn't thought of any of the important stuff. The obsession for this climb not only came out of the beauty, but it also came out of, well, this is what I didn't think about. What else am I not thinking about? You know, and I just layer on more and more and more. This is Henry Barber, the free climbing legend from the 1970s who made waves with his audacious on-site free solos, including a ropeless on-site ascent of Yosemite's Dex route in 1973. Now at 56 years old, Henry has all but retired from expedition climbing. But he talks about one of his big, unfinished dreams, still lingering in his mind from the 70s, the east buttress of Mount Johnson in Alaska's Ruth Gorge. So we just thought, oh, well, we can do this. You know, we climbed 511. <laughs> we, we can go on this thing. And uh, we, we went up there and, uh, in 75, and we got totally spanked. I mean, it was... It was a comedy. Really, it was a comedy. And the peak, 
this this beautiful iconic peak, this you know beautiful monolithic sweep of granite with this beautiful um, uh, fluted snow cone on top was that was the, the crucible for Henry, the crucible of Mount Johnson, the source of that mountain's test lay in its questions. You know, if I look at all of the climbs that I didn't do, I think I could do all of them. But the more I thought about this climb, the more I wasn't sure I could do it. And the more I wasn't sure I could do it, the more I wanted to do it. I didn't have any idea about, you know, how logistically, how we would climb such hard climbing. I had no concept. I had, to, I had all these, like, I didn't write a checklist, but I had a checklist of unanswered questions in my mind. The balancing of, of um, talent and the balancing of equipment and who was going to do what and who would be the right people, who would have the, who's going to have the demeanor to sit in three weeks of storms and then go up on a wet face and charge. Henry attempted Mount Johnson first in 1971 and then again in 1975. During those intervening four years, during the heyday of the hot Henry sensation, everything he climbed was in part preparation for this one big dream. His initial failure was driving him forward. It's like putting together a thousand-piece puzzle. Henry returned to Alaska in 75 with Yvonne Chouinard and two Swiss climbers. And despite their strong team and significant progress on the wall, a massive snowstorm sent them down, far below the summit once again. You recognize when you've got the corners, you know, and then you recognize when you've got the borders done, and you're starting to fill in on all the little pieces and the details. And then all of a sudden the puzzle throws you a whammy, like the pieces sitting under the couch. You can't, you can't place it, you know? The funny thing is, Henry doesn't sound the least bit regretful. In fact, listening to him tell stories from his prime climbing days, I get the sense that had he succeeded on that second trip in 75, he wouldn't be talking about Mount Johnson with the same reverence, the same giddiness almost, that he does today. You know, it's sweeter because uh, you can't always do things that big. You can't always afford them. You can't always afford the time. You can't always afford, you may not have the connections with people. There's some resource, whether it's a partner or equipment or money or time, something that you may not be able to do. But when you put so much energy and, you know, are so possessed almost about doing something, you mean you learn more from failure than you do from success. There's no question. Then you have the opportunity to project that into other parts of your life. We all know that size isn't everything, but let's face it, there is a whole other category of climbing dreams out there. The objectives so big, they're usually only climbed with huge teams and crazy budgets and years of all-consuming effort. Mountains like K2, Makalu, and Nanga Parbat. These are the greatest mountain faces on the planet, where the margins of success and survival are as thin as they get. What is it like to have those dreams? What is it like to fulfill them? I decided to call Steve House. 
I had convinced myself at that point that that goal was so important that it was worth dying for. Steve is talking about climbing Nanga Parbat in northern Pakistan. In 2004, Steve and Bruce Miller attempted a new route up Nanga Parbat's sheer Rupal face, which at 14,000 feet long and topping out at over 26,000 feet of elevation, is known as the highest mountain wall on the planet. Stepping out onto Nanga Parbat's icy, barren flanks, Steve was acting on a dream he'd held for over 15 years, since his earliest days as a climber. Once I got going um, on that route, and I was like a bulldog. Like, I wasn't going to let go of that for anything. I was going. You know, I was going to the top, and if it meant not coming back, so be it. It just didn't matter at that point. And we were up there, and I was pretty sick um, from the altitude, and uh, we were looking at having a bivouac up near the summit, and had it not been for uh, Bruce's more sort of level-headedness. But, I mean, he had the strength to sort of turn us around and bring us back home, and uh, I will forever be indebted to him for that. The climbers retreated about 1,600 feet from the summit, and Steve returned home to the Pacific Northwest. At the time, it was a really hard pill to swallow, and after sitting on it and thinking about it and digesting it for the better part of a year, I came to understand um, a little bit more about what my headspace had been like and why. You know, now I look at that experience as uh, really pivotal. Steve had gone to the edge of dying for his goal, and it didn't work. If he was going to finish this route on Nanga Parbat, he needed a new approach. He needed to shift the dream somehow. He was given the chance a year later when he returned to the mountain with climber Vince Anderson. I had to kind of come back around to my original inspiration for climbing and forget about the goal um, and forget about sort of being obsessed with success and just uh, open up to Vince and open up to the mountain and let it happen. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't happen, but that time it certainly did. We got the weather and we climbed the cruxes and we we kept it together and and we got up and down. and, And I think that that's always going to stand, no matter what I do uh, in the future, I think that will always stand as, as one of the most important moments of my life. The view from my new condo is so great. When you think about it, a dream is really a story. It has a beginning, that initial spark of inspiration, and a middle, all the planning and preparation, And it has an end, the summit and the exhausted stagger back to base camp. But what if we're all a little short-sighted here, so focused on the objective we don't consider the rest of the story? I think Nanga Parbat was such a huge goal that when I accomplished it, I couldn't imagine undertaking something of that magnitude ever again. It was a really hard year for me, the year after we did that, for a lot of reasons. but all of them tied to having accomplished something that meant so much. I essentially felt depressed. And so I think, in a sense, part of my depression was about I had reached a, pinnac- a pinnacle in my life. Like, it was all kind of downhill from there. And, um, you know, it was like 35, and I'm, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> Some people I talked to even even came out and said, well, yeah, I think you should, I think you should make that the pinnacle because if you keep going, you're going to kill yourself kind of a thing. Steve calls his depression his post-Nanga Parbat syndrome. And ironically enough, 
It took returning to the mountains not to achieve a new, higher goal, but to fail well below a summit in a storm to shake him back to life. It was a year later, and he and Vince had traveled to Kunyangchish, an unclimbed mountain in northern Pakistan. There was so much energy there in the mountain, and we were like, doing everything we could basically just to survive. And in some ways that was really frightening, but in other ways it was really uh, invigorating. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. But um, I re- but when we came, we came down from that, I was fired up to go alpine climbing again. I had to get shaken up a little bit by the, by the big hills to kind of realize what was, what was important about being out there for me. Ambitious people when I project my life out, you know, I don't expect to ever quit climbing. I'll just adjust the size of my, and scope of my objectives to, to fit my abilities at the time. And I'm uh, really kind of looking forward to that whole process. Nanga Parbat, Mount Johnson, Cerro Torre, Fitzroy. These dream mountains draw us in because of their beauty and their complexity, and also for what they demand of us, their test. It seems what all these climbers have been saying is that the big objectives, the lifelong goals, they keep us moving forward. And whether they're met with success or failure, they inspire us to keep trying. Steve House put it this way. That lesson that's I think central to the climbing experience um, of never being finished and always always having another project, another dream to do. That's part of the gift of climbing. But I can't help but come back to the metaphor of the climber toiling away and toiling away to get to the summit, and then having one of those it's the journey, not the destination moments on top. I know it's a total cliche, but it's part of the pursuit. I once watched a documentary about the climber John Backer, and he said something about going to the mountain to find out about yourself, and going back to the mountain, and going back to the mountain, and then waking up one day and realizing that you no longer need the mountain. To me, it seems the objective itself doesn't matter as much as just the act of putting the wheels of adventure into motion. So when do we decide those wheels are rolling? Is it at the airport, or when we're ferrying loads to base camp? Or could it begin before, with all those moments staring out the window during a workday, completely absorbed by a daydream? Or in my case, with my eyes catching a portrait of Fitzroy every time I walk to the fridge? It has been years since Jim and I first had that conversation about Fitzroy. But still, I find my gaze being drawn to that photograph. Since then, I too have been to Argentina. I've climbed the satellite spires of Fitzroy's southern shoulder. I've experienced the beauty of Patagonia. And the dream of climbing Fitzroy has become a part of me as well. But today that's still just what it is. A dream. A goal still undone. And secretly, to tell you the truth, a little part of me likes it that way. The mountain has become a presence in our lives, specifically, I think, because it remains untried. It's all potential, all what could be. The dream binds us to our passions, even in the midst of our changing lives and our changing priorities. 
Just knowing that this mountain is down there, anchoring the southern tip of South America, weathering the winds that blast off the Patagonian ice cap, it gives me hope for what's to come, for all the adventures still in store. Maybe all of us do that to some degree. We hold on to the ideal of a mountain. We save a project. That one climb above all others. The goals we hoard because just having them gives us more than what we gain from their accomplishment. For those, perhaps, it's enough to just dream. On the great south coast, I fell asleep for a very long time. I listened to the tents flapping in the wind. Though the world was white, fading into blue. So today's episode was a little bit different than most. I mean, we were chasing an idea rather than a single story. Good friend Sarah Garlic is one of the few people I would trust to do it. She lives, writes, and climbs around North Conway, New Hampshire. If you're a climber and you're at all interested on the rock you climb on, you should check out Sarah's book, Flakes, Jugs, and Splitters, A Rock Climber's Guide to Geology, available from Falcon Books. It's a beautiful book, complete with some of those wonderful color photos hanging in her office. Today, we were very pleased to spotlight a single band, The Secret Life of Sophia. All these songs were part of this concept album the band worked on. They got inspired by alpinism and mountains, and they wanted to know what the dreams, fears, and experience of alpinists would sound like. The result was their latest release, Seven Summits. You can check them out on myspace.com backslash the secret life of Sophia. Our site, yourbagdiaries.com, has got links and some info about the band. We love hearing from you. Drop us a line at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. If you've got a story idea, a comment, a submission, whatever, we love hearing from you. Drop us a line at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. You can also find us on Facebook. We're there. Check us out. Be our friend. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who provide the technical clothing for you to realize that long-term dream. Find them online at patagonia.com. Additional support for the diaries comes from New Belgium Brewing. I'm Fitzka Hall, that was Sarah Garlic, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. You'll see it all renewed.